Appamada's programmes and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much. Um, so I want to continue to reflect and to invite your reflections on vowing. And so I'm, first of all, I'm going to uh, reflect on kind of where we've come to this week. This is your sort of mid or late week review. Um, what we've done with each other and the process of vowing, and then I want to um, use some additional voices, like the ones you've got in your handout and some others, to, to help us just keep navigating the territory. Not that you're getting new information, but keep aligning it, keep it um, open. So, in terms of review, just a few things to to remind us of. First of all, it, it's important, I think, to think of the verb vowing rather than a. Vow. Even if you write something that you say, this is my vow, you know, it's a dynamic, a life thing, I hope, uh, that, it, uh, that it continues to uh, have life and maybe even evolve over time. And it's because of it, it's enacted in the embodiment we've talked about, that enactment embodiment is vowing, it's living your way in, into it. We know that vow is not a promise, like I said yesterday. It's not because that's a parent-child interaction, and many people think of it that way, especially when it's like a Zen master or a spiritual thing, like I'm going to make some sort of promise. But um, that makes it too small. It's a mature offering, and we mature as we offer it. It's also not a goal. Goals can be accomplished. Vows cannot be accomplished. Unfold continually, and we deepen them, and they expand and open and change over time. <clears throat> because also, it's not a um, performative thing that goes to a prescribed outcome either. So I'm not telling you anything new, but it's it's just to kind of maybe knit these together. Um, I I also think about what I call latent vows, seeds like uh, a calling that you can tell it's kind of you tell what it is um, when you feel yourself um, bowing and you feel this sort of sense of devotion well, what's that uh, there's this sort of mystery that we enter um, and all of you have spoken about this a bit you know when you've talked about your vows so there's latent energies that come forward you know my sense as i read the piece i did about as a little boy coming from a strictly religious home, there were wholesome aspects of that and unwholesome aspects. And this is what you're, you'll find as you pay attention to the latent vows, there's some wholesome aspect and some unwholesome aspect. Um, some of it's fantasized and romantic, you know, especially when I was a kid, but I think for most of us, there are aspects that are the same. Um, which is different than a, a true calling. And when I say true, it means something that's refined and you live your way into over time that matures. 
I think most of us come to vowing. I'm going to make it a little dichotomous here from two basic points of view. Either we come to practice because we have a lot of pain. Something brought us to our knees. It's like, okay, okay, I'll practice. Uh, and we're looking for something. Or we've experienced something that is so inspirational, or we've seen a person. It's like, what is, what's that? And sometimes both. But there are two different ways that we can come to this vow, and not just from some pain or suffering, and not just from some elevated uh, romanticized thing either, but true inspiration and true difficulty, I think, come together. Is this true for most of you? Somewhere or another. Or just some deep question, which kind of sits in the middle there. Uh, these things began personally, but they extend outwardly <coughs> and deeper. Uh, this is bodhicitta, you know, awakened. And these vows are basically energies. They're dynamic energies that flow. Ultimately unfulfillable, but they sustain us and accompany us to life. Uh, another thing that we haven't spoken about much, but Tori Zinje talks at, vows are risky. Um, because they run so counter to self-interest. But you risk um, is the idea of yourself. There's a balance of idealism and realism in it. Um, but but it's, a, it's a kind of a risky business. And we find ourselves in community, which we're going to speak about more today. And when we find ourselves in community, we find ourselves often coming up to the edge of our capacity. You know, the spiritual practice is really nice until like, the other people show up. <laughs> like, oh, <man. laughs> I know, there's the beauty too. But you know what I'm talking about, you know? It's like, man, there's so many opportunities for um, being triggered. Uh, sangha is a necessary and beautiful milieu in which we grow, and it's like a messy probe. Coming. It's like a big mess. Um, <clears throat> vows uh, also are an act of restraint. Because we choose certain things, that means we don't choose other things. Right alongside this vast potential, because it opens us to vastness. It's a little bit of a paradox, you know? But that's sort of like in the Paramitas. It requires discipline if they're to be sustained. And you, you remember my definition of discipline, remembering what you want. And it takes some courage sometimes in that recent thing. My definition of courage, you may have heard. It's like a little formula. Courage is commitment plus doubt plus action. There's some commitment, like, okay, I'm gonna do something, but if there's no doubt, you're taking courage, you just like do it. Usually it's a doubt. Ah, and then in, then action, because if you don't take the action, it's like a good idea. And nothing happens. So this is part of the aspect of vow as well, I think. And to make them explicit and clear, like we've been working with. And in the Jukai ceremony, you know, you take uh, precepts 
um, it strengthens them. And to share them, to make them public, you don't have to land on it like, okay, I'm sticking with this and I'm, you know, I'm changing my mind. No, but to make them explicit really makes them public. <clears throat> Here's a, a quote from Norman Fisher about this act of vowing. He said, vowing is like walking toward the horizon. You know where you're headed. You can see the destination brightly up ahead. And you keep on going toward it with enthusiasm, even though you never arrive there. As the Talmud says, and Kim has reminded us, it's not for you to complete the task, but neither are you to ignore it. This is interesting tension. So in that spirit, I want to um, just share a few things. Um, part from uh, Wordsworth, William Wordsworth, and some from a um, contemporary teacher, of student of Jokos, Ezra Bader. So in Wordsworth, some of you know, the prelude was an autobiographical journey that he took in his writing. It's a little bit like some of what you heard hey, you know, this semi autobiographical in some ways, um, the subtitle of the growth of people's mind. It was written between 1799 and 1805 and has 14 books, it's a lot of pages. Um, and he describes the growth of the poetic mind and soul um, in 7,883 blank line verses. And this is the story of three basic things. And listen to this and think if he was sitting in the Zendo here with us. The story is the account of the growth of spirit, the development of awareness, and the evolution of a sensitive mind. Sound familiar? Like, hmm, that's very interesting. It's the longest poem of Wordsworth's career. And, <clears throat> and a little sidestep. In two years of retreat in the UK, um, because there are sagas there that, that I'm great and fortunate to have to leave, we um, rented a house uh, called Broadhow in the Lake District, and it was on property that Wordsworth owned, and did retreats there for, for two of the years. <clears throat> so I'm going to share something here. Okay, that's good enough. We'll go with that. It's not going to transition like I like. Bowing. Okay, that's Josh and Trudy walking in the Lake District. <laughs> and so, um, this last year, in some of the areas that we particularly love, we're going to go back to Norman Fisher's quote. He said, Bowing is walking toward the horizon. You can see the destination brightly up ahead. Broad is in those trees. <laughs> you can see the house. You know where you're headed. And you keep on going toward it with enthusiasm. Even though you never arrive there, it's like a stream, you know, it just keeps going. And what you arrive at is, of course, intimacy. That's the front yard. And in the spring, that's what we sit with. But Wordsworth 
owned this property from 1806 to 1834, and the Justice group of Sanghas in the UK. We sat there in 2012 and 2013. <laughs> A piece of his writing that sparked this was from the, uh, this larger, huge poem. There's a piece called Summer Vacation. Um, and this is just a segment of it. Um, and uh, Maria, can you read that? Can you see it to read it? Yeah, I can see it. <laughs> okay, so if you, yeah, unmute yourself. Uh, could you read it for us? Because I'm, I think it'd be good to have, you're actually there. <laughs> and, and you have the right accent, so. <laughs> I'll try and use my poshest one. <laughs> Summer vacation, William Wordsworth. Magnificent the morning rose in memorable pomp. Glorious as ever I had beheld in front. The sea lay laughing at a distance, near the solid mountain shone, bright as the clouds, grain tinctured, drenched in empyrean light. And in the meadows and the lower grounds was all the sweetness of a common dawn. Dews, vapours and the melody of birds and labourers going forth to till the fields. Ah, I need, need I say, dear friend, that to the brim my heart was full. I made no vows, but vows were then made for me. Bond unknown to me was given that I should be, else sinning greatly, a dedicated spirit. On I walked in thankful blessedness, which yet survives. Thank you. There's a couple of words in there that have fallen out of the English language. Um, uh, grain tincture means scarlet. Uh, and empyrean light means heavenly. Mm -hmm. Solid mountain shone bright as the clouds, grain tincture drenched in a brilliant light. It's quite beautiful. You have to understand that Wordsworth was disaffected from his family and he lived with his uncle and grandparents, and his uncle insisted in a harsh way, they were kind of not so nice to him, that he should take a vocation in the Church of England and become a priest. And he he knew that wasn't what he that wasn't what he was called to. And so they had been at a party all night long in the Lake District, and he was walking home. And as he walked home, magnificent the morning rose in the royal pond, glorious in there. And the laborers were coming out, and there was um, that image is actually in Derbyshire, not up in the lakes, but one morning when I was walking on the moors there. And he realizes he was walking with his heart full. I made no vows because he felt himself called to go out as a poet and not what his family wanted him to do. I made no vows, I made no vows, but vows were made for me. You get that now, don't you? Bond unknown to me was given. <clears throat> that I should be else sinning greatly, a dedicated spirit. Sinning, you know, if you look at the root word of sin, it means to miss the mark. You know, to not to do what's 
We want to be most people. A dedicated spirit. And then I love that. On I walk in thankful blessedness, which yet survives. So it's always been an inspiration to me. And sharing this, um, Clayton gave me back once a piece from another part of his writing. Um, lines written a few miles above Tintern Abbey. And I want to say a couple of things about this. Um, because having, this is a place that he loved, that he'd gone away from and he was returning. This is a place I've loved that I've gone away from, to which I've returned. And all the things that moved in that and the move around Val. Um, and I don't know if it will be possible, you might want to, could you read it, Joel? Um, can you see it? I can't see it that well. Okay, great. I would ask about that. I'll be happy to read it. I just thought, you know, he's also on, but you're another voice. But, um, <laughs> and since I'm reflecting on it for myself, I'll, I'll read it. This is just one little piece from, from this. But think about we're coming, we're coming here now, like Abhamada is now. That time has passed. And all its aching joys are now no more. And all its dizzying raptures. Not for this faint eye, nor mourn, nor murmur. Other gifts have followed. For such loss, I would believe, abundant recompense. For I've learned to look on nature. Mm -hmm. Not as in an hour of thoughtless youth, but hearing oft times the still, sad music of humanity. You're all looking at the you're in the present world. The still, sad music of humanity, not harsh or grating, though of ample power to chasten and subdue. And I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused. See, there it is. Whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky. In the mind of people, <laughs> a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. It's all a little bit like Dogen there. Therefore, am I still a lover of the meadows and the woods and the mountains? And of all that we behold from this green earth, of all the mighty world, of eye and ear, both what they half create and what perceive, well pleased to recognize in nature and the language of the sense, the anchor of my purest thoughts, the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart and soul, of all my moral being. It's an unusual language, I know, but I hope that you get the sense of it. And I appreciate your calling me to this piece in the past. Let's uh, So the last line is of all my moral being or all my mortal being? I may have copied it wrong. I don't know. I think it's mortal. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. That's, that's, that's my recollection. Sure. I think yeah. that's right. 
So, you know, my re reflection on this is far less romantic, of course, it's not that, but you can hear all these pieces. The past is the past. You hear the cries of the world. There's this emergence of a request, the most request um, of something far more deeply interfused, is dwelling, is the light of the setting. It's like this hall of nature. And we're, we're talking about embodiment here well, as well. Uh, emotion is spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. This is Buddha nature. The anchor of my purest thoughts, all mortal being. <laughs> we have vow coming in there. So um, let's look at the handout. Huh? We have to stop at 40. 35. Oh, 35. So we have only one minute, so we'll have to do it quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and John had to leave, so we're not stopping him. So would you mind bringing it out? Those of you online, you can read on both sides of it. And here, from John Eric, right to the center, here you choose that side. Um, read Tori Zinji's Bodhisattva Vow. Everybody up here, read Ezra Beta. Okay? And everybody online, you read both, because you'll just be listening to us. Okay? Ready? So we're going to start with Tori Zinji. All of you together, back there, begin. When I stoop away, look at the real form of the universe, all is the never-failing a mysterious truth of the awakened life. In any event, in any moment, and in any place, none can be other than the marvelous revelation of this glorious light. Our aspiration, our calling, our desire for a genuine life is to see the truth of who we really are, that the nature of our being is connectedness and love, not the illusion of a separate self to which our suffering clings. It is from this awareness that life can build over us, the unconditioned manifesting freely as our conditioned body. This realization made our ancestors and teachers extend tender care with respectful hearts, even to such beings as birds and beasts. And what is the path to learn to reside in whatever life presents, to learn to attend to all those things which block the flow of a more open life, and to see them as the very path to awakening? All the constructs, the identities, the holding back, the projections, all the fears, the self-judgments, the blame, all that separates us from letting life be. This realization teaches us that our daily food, drink, clothes, and protections of life are the warm flesh and blood, the merciful incarnation of the awakened one. And what is this path? To turn away from constantly seeking comfort and from trying to avoid pain. To open into the willingness to just be in this very moment exactly as it is, 
no longer ready to be caught in the relentlessly spinning mind. Practice is about awakening to the true self. No one special to be, nowhere to go, just being. Even if they are grateful or not respectful, even to the senseless things, not to see the humans, even though they may be a fool, be warm and compassionate toward them. If by any chance they should turn against us, become sworn enemies and persecute us, we should sincerely bow down with humble language in the reverent understanding that they are the merciful messengers of the awakened one, who use devices to emancipate us from blind tendencies produced and accumulated upon ourselves by our own egoistic delusion and attachment through countless cycles of space and time. We are so much more than just this body, just this personal trauma, as we cling to our fear and shame and our suffering, we forsake the gratitude of living from our natural being. So where, in this very moment, do we cling to our views? Softening around the mind's incessant judgment, we can awaken the heart that seeks to be awakened. Then, on each moment's flash of our thought, there will grow a lotus flower. And on each lotus flower will be revealed our perfection, unceasingly manifest in our life, just as it is right here in my now. And when the veil of separation rises, life simply unfolds as it will. No longer caught in the self-centered dream, we can give ourselves to others like a white bird in the sun. May we extend his mind to all beings, so that we and the world together may attain maturity in the wisdom of the awakened life. Time is fleeting. Don't, Don't hold back. Appreciate this precious life. That's quite a conversation, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and it's something that you could return to. Uh, that going through it and voicing it together, you realize, oh, you see how these teachings are helping each other. Now we have to do service, and I appreciate your indulgence to finish that. 